Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is season six, episode 28. I'm Rick, author of just released book, The Suicide Solution. It's been out, I think, for maybe three weeks now or something like that. It's a collaboration with Dr. Daniel Amina, um, where we explore the epidemic of anxiety, depression, and suicidality in our culture today, and what uh, the latest in clinical research and practice, along with uh, insights into how Jesus interacted with people to uproot and uh, sort of decommission these destructive narratives that we hold inside that often lead to dire consequences in our life. It's this exploration of how these three things sort of um, complement and beautifully merge together and the book is really a, um, a way of understanding this epidemic, and also uh, the lion's share of it is a way to live. In fact, a way to live is, is the tagline that Daniel, my co-author, had suggested before. It didn't get chosen, but um, it really is accurate that most of the book is an exploration of how to, uh, uh, just a menu of possibilities in how to live our lives that are uh, a reflective of the way Jesus lived his life. So living our lives in the way of Jesus um, and, and how those ways overlap and are uh, uh, magnified and clarified by what we know from science and research really works. Um, so these are ways that both we can help our biology or the hardware in our computer and ways that we can help our software uh, in that computer. Just ways to live our life that uh, are form a bulwark against anxiety, depression, and suicidality in our life. That's what the suicide solution is all about. So that's just out. I encourage you to go check it out on Amazon. You can take a peek inside there. You can even get it as an audiobook now. So if you just want to listen while you're um, walking on the treadmill or uh, taking the dog for a walk, you can do that too. And also just as a reminder, as we head into the uh, steep water slide uh, into Christmas and a holiday season, don't forget about the Jesus Center Daily as a, a great little Christmas gift for someone on your list who um, would appreciate a daily experience of Jesus, a daily taste of his goodness um, all through the year. So that's one great Christmas gift. And also don't forget about the Jesus-centered Bible. That's another uh, fantastic way to, to um, honor uh, a life with Jesus in someone else's life. So don't forget about those. So this is the third episode in our ongoing focus that I'm calling Jesus in the real world. We're just going to keep doing this like for infinity. <laughs> so this is a, the, a new direction I'd like to take this in. And instead of doing um, series that are topical connected, those topics will be embedded um, somehow, some way 
in every one of these new episodes, Jesus in the real world. And the idea here is to, uh, is to help us to see our relationship with Jesus in all of the nooks and crannies of our everyday life, in all of the issues that we care about in our everyday life, in all of the little uh, challenges and hurdles we have to overcome in our everyday life, and not see him as a compartment that we live in. So we're going to be pursuing the heart of Jesus through the lens of what's going on in the world right now. So here we go, episode three in this new series. So I don't know if you're a competitive game player, whether that's board games, card games, or uh, physical games. If if you play a competitive game, like our family, when our uh, girls were growing up, we had every Saturday night, um, for the most part, a game night. And we would listen to this program on our on my favorite jazz station called the R&B Jukebox. And we'd turn the music up a little bit and listen to uh, old school R&B music for about two hours while we played a board game or a card game together. And uh, it was my favorite night of the week. Um, but there are certain games, you know, like there's this game that's my favorite called Sorry. <laughs> it's an oldie but a goodie. Um, I love Sorry, because it's such a upending game. Just when you think you might win, you you might end up losing. And just when you think you're going to lose, you might end up winning. And the whole game is based on revenge about, um, you know, if, if you draw the right card and you land on the right square, you can put an opponent back to their, the very starting place again. So um, I, I just love the shifts in momentum in this game. I think it's a brilliantly simple game. But I think the rest of my family kind of hates it. <laughs> and one of the reasons why is that it's, it creates kind of a climate sometimes. If you, if you don't go into playing that game with the right kind of mindset or attitude, you can really actually resent the people you're playing with uh, and the emotions and feelings of being you know, sent back to the start when you're just on the verge of winning can create actual resentment in people. And, and so I, um, I, I think I tend to treat, um, I tend to treat a game like sorry with, uh, sort of a, well, I, I you know, I'm, I'm backed away from it a little bit. I'm not, I'm not taking it too seriously, but if you just happen to be, have had a hard day and then the person next to you seems to repeatedly send you back to the start, it can actually make you feel like that person's your enemy. And do those feelings linger after the game? In my experience, they can. <laughs> so we don't want to be making enemies. So, you know, maybe, maybe I, I just need to give up my delight in playing the game. Sorry, because uh, we don't need any more enemies, do we? Because um, we live in an age of enemies. That, that's a, a way of understanding the time that we live in right now. Never it has, has it been easier or more likely than that we can create enemies just by living our life. I mean, you really don't have to look far to offend someone and end up on the wrong side of them. And now you are somebody's enemy. And we don't have to uh, cast our vision very wide before we find people that we think of just in a default way as our enemies. Um, I, th I think you could almost. Uh, close your eyes and point, and you can find an enemy somewhere in this culture. Here's a case in point. You can 
there's a there's a, web, a media website called Nextdoor. It's quite popular. It's a it's a neighborhood website franchise, and it's designed so that uh, neighbors can talk uh, talk to other neighbors, and uh, or at least post messages to other neighbors. You can sell things to, to your neighbors. You can alert neighbors about a problem in the neighborhood, or you can share gossip, which happens a lot on Nextdoor. Uh, you can ask a question and ask for advice. Uh, but no matter what you post on Nextdoor, there's a pretty high possibility that somebody's going to respond to your post like an enemy. <laughs> I, I, I think it can be almost random. So like the other day, um, I got a notification in my email about a new post to Nextdoor because I'm signed up on this site. Um, and sometimes I get an email that says there's a new post and here's what it's about. So in my inbox, it said the post was simply titled spider, spider. How can you not open uh, an email that says somebody has an issue with a spider? <laughs> so I did. And here's what I read. There was a picture of this big old ugly pinkish grayish spider. And this person, Shelly, posted underneath the picture. What in the holy heck kind of giant spider is this? Gross. And uh, amongst the, the responses to that very innocent post, so a picture of a spider, oh my gosh, uh, what kind of giant spider is this? Um, here's just some random responses that come after this innocent post. Ooh, I don't know, but if you do know, all you need to, to do to stop these, please, if you, let, let me go back and read it again. Ooh, I don't know, but I do know that you need to stop with these spider, spider posts because she's freaked out by it. Another person said, harmless, man's friend, eats bugs, don't kill it. Another, another responder, Julie, says, okay, this is the worst thread ever. I have creepy chills all over. And then another responder, Wendy, says, sure, it's creepy, but it's also beautiful and it has a place in our world, so let it live. Um. Let's see what else. Uh, Rochelle said, oh my gosh, it's horrible, ugly little insect eating spider. And then she adds that I hate bugs, especially spiders. Ugh, all this talk about spiders is giving me anxiety. And somebody responds back to her and says, as someone who studies and builds habitats for insects, birds, and variety of wildlife, I highly encourage you to consider how incredible and essential insects are for our human survival. From decomposition to feeding larger megafauna and the most highly recognize benefit to humans, pollination, uh, and so on. She keeps going on. Um, so then from this point, um, I think it's like 120 posts later, what you see is this burgeoning um, firefight between people that are pro-spider and anti-spider. And, and it gets personal and, and people use language with each other. They'd never use face-to-face. And it's all from this innocent post about a spider. It's almost like percolating right underneath the surface of our life is this lava that's, that's just looking for a place to erupt. And the, the, the anger that's just underneath our surface just needs the bare minimum requirement for it, its legitimacy, for it to surface for us. So how can this happen? Why do these simple, innocent online conversations so quickly and easily devolve into this kind of name calling and anger and enemy making? 
Well, in our culture today, um, it's, it's, it's now a common thing to make enemies and be enemies. Um, even if you're not trying to, even if, even if you wander into the room un, unsuspecting, it's likely that something you say or do could make someone an enemy of you. There are opportunities in our culture for enemy, enemy making everywhere and always, including, you know, I mean, just a few things that come to the top of my consciousness just pop out right away. Terrorism, for instance. Um, we just crossed over uh, not too many, like a, a month or two ago, the 20 year observance of 9 11. And around that anniversary, um, all of the emotions and trauma that came around 9-11 are all surfaced again. And we're reminded again that we have enemies in the world who hate us and are willing to sacrifice their lives to kill us if they can. Um, so the, that 20-year observance of 9-11 just reminded me all over again, oh yeah, there's people in the world that hate us so much they're willing to sacrifice their life for their hatred. Um, and there are those, of course, that are on opposite sides of the political divide that we live in today. And the language spewed across the wall from either side is so, um, so hate-filled, so enemy-like in so many ways. Or those who believe that racism continues to be a cancer in our society and those who don't believe that. And uh, how, how each side sees each other as enemies. Uh, and those who misinterpret our motives or assume bad intentions or simply judge us. These are, you know, as I list these off, I, I imagine that you're nodding your head. Yes, these are things that um, splash over into my life as well. And in fact, you know, in some of these arenas, um, that the, the reality that there are people that we are diametrically opposed to is not something we can spin or talk ourselves out of, uh, you know, in, from, so it, for instance, um, on our car, we have a black lives matter sticker. Um, does that mean that we're anti-police? Well, some people could read it that way, but we put that sticker on there as a show of support, um, for our African-American friends who continue to be traumatized and um, marginalized in this whole uh, issue of racism in our culture. Um, and it's, a, it's just a way for our family in a small way to add our support um, to those we love and care about and to raise the consciousness around uh, systemic racism in our culture. So this is something we've chosen to do to put this um, kind of sticker on the back of one of our cars. Um, and, but is that a heroic action? I don't think so. But there are others around us who have said to us, wow, that's taking a risk. Uh, you know, if, if your car is parked in a grocery store parking lot and that sticker's on the back, you might have somebody just, you know, deface your car or vandalize your car because of it. Is that true? Um, are we at a place in our culture so much so that that the issue of racism in our culture can't be raised uh, so that we can try to honestly address 
its impact in our culture. It's, it's undeniable that it's part of our history. Uh, I think the real question is, is it, does it continue to be a cancer in our society? Well, in our family, we say, yes, it is a continuing cancer and it's good for us to highlight what's true. But there are those who don't believe that's true. And that automatically starts to funnel you into um, sides where, where you see each other as enemies, right? So there's so many issues like this that start to form us into enemies who live in an enemy culture. Um, I thought it was interesting since we're talking about racism um, that there, there's a new ad campaign for a menu item at Taco Bell of all places. Um, and uh, it's a, the, the, the ad campaign for Taco Bell is about a, a, a new product. I forget what it's called. We're about to hear it because <laughs> I'm going to let you listen to one of these commercials. But the debate is about whether it's a taco or a sandwich. Yeah, which one is it? So that's the premise of the whole ad campaign. So I'm going to have you listen to one of their ads. It's, it's very short. Um, but what you can, obviously can't see the ad, so you're just going to have to listen to it. But let me tell you what's happening. It's a very simple visual. It's two men sitting on a couch in front of a table at either end of the couch. And one is a white man. And one is a black man. And they're both eating the same new Taco Bell product. So let's listen to how this short ad goes, and then we'll talk about it. The new crispy chicken sandwich taco from Taco Bell. Is it a sandwich or a taco? Which side are you on? Try it with special pricing on the app. Okay, there's the mystery salt. It's called the crispy chicken sandwich taco. And the, the debate, which is supposed to be fun, is, is it a sandwich or a taco? And on this couch, again, there's a white man sitting on one end of the couch and a black man sitting on the other. And they're both eating their crispy chicken sandwich taco and they're eyeing each other. Like clearly one of them believes it's a sandwich and one of them believes it's a taco. And I think Taco Bell might've screwed up there by framing this as a black man and a white man over this debate. I mean, why use something as present and painful as this divide to sell your chicken taco sandwich, uh, uh, crispy chicken taco sandwich? Why do it? Um, in another ad in the same campaign, you see uh, people on either side of this debate putting up angry yard signs that, oh, it's really a sandwich. No, it's really a taco. And people driving by a sign and screaming, you know, uh, anger at the person who put the sign up in their yard. I mean, they're playing off of the whole divisiveness of our culture, but it's kind of painful to watch because the, the, the idea that people would get all worked up about whether their taco is really a taco or whether it's really a sandwich is not that far from the truth, actually, that people could get actually mad about. It seems crazy. That, I mean, they're banking on it being over the top and goofy funny, but the truth is, uh, like we've seen with the spider, it doesn't take much to put us on either side. And uh, I think 
I, again, I think Taco Bell might have uh, miscalculated in using some of this imagery and playing it for fun. Um, because I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to see that as funny right now when there's so much about that culture that is just repugnant. So, so are these commercials satirizing enemy making or are they perpetuate, uh, perpetuating it? Um, my verdict is, is that they're kind of perpetuating it. They're making it look like it's normal to make enemies in our culture. Well, of course, Jesus uh, has a lot to say about our relationship with enemies. Well, um, Jesus's kingdom of God standard for love is directly tied to the way that we treat our enemies. So it's an important thing for us to slow down and pay better attention to why he is highlighting um, our relationship with our enemies as a portal into understanding how God loves and how Jesus is urging us to love. So let's slow down a little bit um, and come at this passage where Jesus uh, kind of concisely, clearly describes what his standard for love is. Let's come at it with a clean slate. Let's slow down and pay ridiculous attention to this. It's from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. And we'll slow down and, and take a look at this. So starting in verse 43, you can open your Jesus Center Bible if you want to Matthew 5. If you're not in the car driving somewhere, go ahead and open it up to Matthew 5. And here's starting in verse 43. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. And if you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. Okay, good. So let's slow down here and consider some questions. Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, not abolish it, right? We know this. He said, I'm not coming here to wipe away the law. I'm coming to fill it up uh, to the brink, uh, to really um, complete the law. And here he says, but I say, and that seems to abolish what the law says. So um, let's go back over that. In verse 43, he says, you've heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. So why would Jesus, who says, I've come to fulfill that law, seem to abolish what the law says? Why, why the contradiction? So. Uh, slowing down here, first he says, you have heard that the law says. So he's, first of all, introducing um, a little more fuzziness <laughs> into how people have interpreted the law. That the law, he says, you've, you've heard it, that it says, love your neighbor and hate your, hate your enemy. Um, but he's, he's suggesting that that standard for love isn't really what the law was intending in the first place. That, that, that he says that the God kind of love loves enemies and prays for people that persecute you. 
Um, and, and his explanation for that is he says, in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven. So he's saying, when you love your enemies and pray for the people, pray for the people who are persecuting you, you are acting like your father and showing that you're actually his children because you're modeling his behavior. That's what children do. We know from so much research that the 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 way that children grow up and are formed into who they become as adults is primarily impacted by the modeling their parents do in their life. For instance, we know from research that parents who um, love Jesus, follow him, make him their priority in their life because they, because they love him, um, and who have uh, honest, trusting, authentic relationships with their kids, and therefore talk about and model what a relationship with Jesus is like in an everyday way, there is a high degree of certainty that those young people will emerge into adulthood pretty much following that same pattern. Um, that mix of authenticity and passion um, modeled in front of kids has a forming influence on them. And so in the same way Jesus is saying, um, if you are children of my father, meaning you have submitted yourself um, like a child would to be formed by the modeling behavior of your father, then you will love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because that's, what's he, that's what he is like. He is not um, loving only those people who love and honor him and expressing hate toward everyone who doesn't. I mean, he, he makes, makes this clear when he says, well, look, he, he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust alike. He's saying he's giving life, life-giving resources to both those people who love him and hate him. There's no difference. He's not withholding from one until they come around and they, they see the light and they start to embrace him. No, he's generous and good to both. Um, and then he explains further, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even tax collectors do that. And he's right. I mean, are we heroes when we love people who love us? No. And our, what, what kind of love are we displaying? Well, it's, it is love. It's not like it's not love, but what Jesus is trying to make a distinction about is that that's a average normal kind of love. And I'm calling you into a kingdom of God kind of love that goes way beyond that. Um, there's no reward in that kind of love. Of, I mean, that's just the way things work, uh, that we, uh, we appreciate those who appreciate us. And, but what about those who don't? That's what sets apart the God kind of love. Um, so is he contradicting himself when he says, but I say? No, he, he did say, I've come to fulfill the law, which means um, there was something lacking in the way that the law operated and was understood and was given. There was something lacking in it. And he's saying, I'm not coming here to, to take that away. Instead, I'm coming to fill it up. I'm coming to show you the full extent of the law what it really is pointing to. 
I'm coming to not just point you to the, the standards in the kingdom of God. I'm coming to live it. You can see in me, in my own modeling, um, what the truth is about the love in the heart of God. And uh, you not only see it in me, let me explain it to you just from the creation around you. You can see that the sunlight shines on the evil and the good and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Even in the creation, we see the heart and character of God. He is kind to all, <laughs> not just to some. And here in verse 47, Jesus says, if you're kind only to your friends, well, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. He's saying people that don't even believe in God, they're kind to their friends. This is like normal, natural, default kind of behavior. But he ends this by saying, but if you're to be perfect, but you are to be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. So perfect here really means um, to conform to the heart, to the heart of God. It means that as children, we more and more live into God's heart as we become captured by it, magnetized by his heart, so that that becomes our normal standard inside. So perfection is not something that we strive or perform our way to get. Perfection comes as we more and more immerse ourselves in a, in a child-to-father relationship. And therefore, the modeling of our beloved father becomes forming in our own hearts, and our hearts start to look like his heart, the same way children live out the value system and behavior pattern and habits of their own beloved parents. So Jesus was clearly hard on the Pharisees and even his own friends some, sometimes. So let's think about this for a second. He was hard on people. Um, he was not nicey-nice all the time to the people around him. In fact, there are plenty of examples of upending interactions that Jesus had with both his enemies and his friends. So what do we think he means by the word love here? How can, how can Jesus say that he loves his enemies and prays for the people persecuting him when he calls Pharisees whitewashed tombs and snakes? I mean, isn't that a contradiction in what he's trying to tell us is the standard? Well, I, I think the, the key here, and this is a theme that comes, comes up often in the podcast, uh, the key here is to understand what love really is. I think in a popular sense in our culture, we have equated love with being nice to people. And the nicer you are to them, the more you love them. Well, we know from personal experience that simply being nice to people is a low version of love. Love, in the way that Jesus describes it, is uh, bringing freedom to captives. It is releasing people from their bondage to whatever it is. It is um, helping them to embrace, grasp, and pursue the truth about who they really are. It is love sometimes exposes um, in the way that love does. You know, if, if someone in your life has a problem with addiction and instead of confronting that problem of addiction, you accept it, well, you become an enabler, which is not love. 
an enabler actually pours gas on the addictive behavior, makes it possible to have. So what real love looks like when you love someone who is addicted is that that love does something to leverage greater freedom in that person's life. So they are no longer caught up in the captivity of their addiction. So that might mean an intervention, or that might mean a separation, or that might mean some other relational cost to that addiction. Why? Because, well, in the moment for the addicted person, it doesn't feel like love at all. It doesn't feel nice at all, for sure. But the action actually is sacrificing short term, um, uh, the, the kind of short term stasis in the relationship for a long-term freedom in that relationship. It's a heroic sacrifice of comfort for the sake of the other. Because believe me, um, organizing an intervention for someone close to you who um, has, uh, has a problem with addiction, that is it comes at a great cost, but it doesn't feel nice to the person um, who that's uh, focusing on. And it shouldn't feel nice because love uh, longs for that person's freedom so that they're no longer uh, controlled by this addiction. So I think you get what I mean here. So Jesus is clearly hard on the Pharisees and his own friends because he has something long-term, deeper, and more important um, in mind for those people. He has longing for their freedom. And if you are a hypocritical, um, blind creature of the law, the best thing that can happen to you is to be jolted out of that. All right. So in the context of loving our enemies, what does it really mean to give sunlight to both the evil and the good? I mean, what, what does that mean? I think it means, in part at least, that we offer human dignity, respect, and grace to even those people that we vehemently disagree with. You know, instead of descending into tit-for-tat hatred and lobbing um, grenades at our enemies, instead we treat them with dignity and respect, even when they're behaving in an offensive manner. It doesn't mean that we expose ourselves to abuse. It means that we are conscious of the basic human needs that everybody has, that we recognize, I guess you could call it our shared humanness in the midst of our interactions with others, that they also need and long for the same things we do, um, no matter how they land on this. I think this is so important for us to understand. I'm often... Uh, pausing myself and pausing others uh, in the midst of conversations about people that make our blood boil on one side or the other of some issue. I'm often pausing myself and or asking others to pause and consider, how do you think that person came to that conclusion? Where does that come from anyway? In what context has that developed for that person? In that person's reality, why does this make sense? What has fed into it? Not so that we, quote unquote, let that person off the hook, but so that we can understand their fundamental human, humanness um, 
And so that in the context of how we relate with that person, we hold as sacred the dignity of who they are. I recently heard a man named J.T. Thomas, who leads a ministry called Civil Righteousness, talk about uh, the George Floyd killing and how um, cataclysmic it was um, in the Black community. And then it spread out past the Black community into all of the culture. Um, and he was talking about uh, his, his own response to it and how he was encouraging others connected to his ministry in their response to this. And one of the shocking things that he said toward the end of that little stretch was um, he was talking about Derek Chauvin, the police officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck until he was dead. And he said, uh, JT Thomas said that um, though the guilty verdict for Derek Chauvin was justified and was uh, gratefully received, especially in the black community, that the system, which so often seems to work against pe people of color, actually worked in this, in this instance. Um, and that uh, Derek Chauvin uh, was disciplined and punished appropriately because of his actions. He said, so given that is true, he said, uh, it's important for us as, uh, it's important for me as a black man to also recognize that Derek Chauvin is a man created in the image of God and that he deserves dignity and respect um, as, a, uh, as a beloved child of God. Though he is going to pay the price for his actions, um, hating Derek Chauvin is an obliteration of his made in the image of God humanness. And so J.T. Thomas is saying, um, my calling as a black man who follows Jesus is to recognize that fundamental humanity in Derek Chauvin and refrain from giving way to feelings of hatred for him, but to recognize that he, like all of us, is created in the image of God and beloved by God, and that, and that God has more to do, more work to do in Derek Chauvin's life, and that the redemptive outcome of that work is a good thing. Um, so this was a... <laughs> Just a bold statement, but I think it speaks to what Jesus here is saying, giving sunlight to both the evil and the good. So Jesus is unveiling the nature of a standard of love in, in these verses 46 and 47. Um, so how would we answer if somebody asked us to explain Jesus's definition of love? What's our like elevator speech about that? Um, so here he says in 46 and 47, if you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. And then he repeats himself with a different example. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. So I think what we can take from that is Jesus' standard of love is that if you only do what is easy, if you only respond in kind to people who treat you well, then how is that reflective of your status as a son or daughter of the king? Because the king in his kingdom not only loves people who love him, but loves people who don't love him. Because that kind of love is transformational. That kind of love rescues people from captivity. That kind of love impacts people 
at such a deep level that that they can actually find um, light in their darkness. So if you only do the the default setting and not uh, this standard that that God lives by, then really you can't claim that you're loving people the way God loves people. And in turn, you might not be able to claim that you're actually his child because a, a child allows themselves again to be formed and influenced by the modeling of their parent. So get close enough to the heart of Jesus and you start to get model his modeling of how he relates to people and how he loves people becomes your model. It just slowly forms your heart. So the standard here is really, if you, if you take the opposite of what Jesus said here is, uh, well, if, if you love those who don't love you, then you're loving like my father loves. And if you're kind to people who aren't kind to you, then you're loving like my father does. And when you do that, you're not, you're, you're, you're rising above what pagans live and you're rising above what corrupt tax collectors do. Um, you're pointing to something beyond the norm when you do that. You're, you're proclaiming the beauty in the heart of God when you do that. You're becoming his witnesses, people who live out what he's really like. And that's exactly how we become perfect as he is perfect, not through striving and performance, but as we are conformed into the, into the, the truth of his heart. And it happens simply because we put ourselves um, in the kind of relationship that looks like a child to its father where all the father does and says infects and transforms us. So as we draw near to the heart of Jesus and are captured by his beauty, we are also magnetized by the way he lives and, and the motivations he has when he interacts with people and the restraint he shows when he's in the presence of people who hate him and the, the boldness he shows in the presence of people who are locked and addicted to their own destructive tendencies. What does he do? He always, always uh, invests himself in uh, reclaiming that person, setting him free from that captivity. So here, what do we do with all this? Well, let's ask Jesus what to do. So I'm just going to close by just giving us a silent place here um, to just pause for a second and ask Jesus, what, what would you like me to do about all this? So let's be quiet for a second. I'll start. We'll give a few moments of silence and then we'll close. So Jesus, um, we want to follow you. So we want to live in your way. We want to love like you love. So in the quiet, would you please just let us know what first little baby step you would like us to take. And now we'll be quiet and listen. All right, everyone. If, uh, if something surfaced for you for that, in that little moment of silence, I, I just encourage you to act on it, treat it as from, from Jesus and do something to act on it, whatever it is. In that way, you'll be worshiping him. Um, and if you didn't sense anything in that moment of quiet, then uh, 
go back at some time today and give yourself a little longer stretch of quiet and ask him, what do you want me to take from this today, Jesus? Uh, what baby step would you like me to look at in, in my life? So gang, this is uh, season six, episode 28 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can find links to what I've talked about today if you go to the SoundCloud page for this podcast, if that's how you get this delivered uh, to you. If you listen to this on SoundCloud, you can go to the episode page and see links to the things we talked about today. Or you can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com um, for, uh, for that as well. Now, this is a podcast produced by, sounds so funny to say this, but it is, it's produced by ricklawrence.com. <laughs> Uh, you can subscribe to us on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.